Our Lord, our God, you are gracious and merciful. You are kind and compassionate. Um, and we are so thankful for all the wonderful blessings you give us each and every day. But most of all, we are thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, we are thankful for the life that he lived um, in perfect obedience to you and also the death that he died, that we might be forgiven of our sins. Um, so we'd like to commit this time to you as we look to your word and your scriptures and as we seek to understand the things that you have written there for us. Um, grant that we may all have clear understanding and clear minds and that we might see clearly how these things apply to our lives and how it is that you would have us live so that we can bring honor and glory to your name and that we might lift your name high and give it glory both here in Cambridge and even to the ends of the earth. So this we pray in your holy name. Amen. All right, we have been doing a series through the book of 1 John, and this morning we are continuing in that series. Uh, the passage I have been signed is up there on the screen, and it is chapter 2, verses 26 to 29. This, of course, follows on from what Aaron was speaking about two weeks ago, and overlaps a little bit um, with the verses that he shared about. <clears throat> now, for context, it is worth mentioning that in this section... John is dealing with false teaching and false teachers. And so that's the context I'd like you to bear in mind when I go now to read the passage. Uh, feel free to find it in your own Bibles and follow along, um, but I'll be reading from the ESV. And this is what, let me just turn this thing on. And this is what the passage says. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, so again, I'd like to give you a rough outline of where we're going to go as we look at this passage. And for the remainder of the sermon, I'm going to address three questions. Now, I've taken these roughly from what the text is talking about, so it should make sense to you when you hear them. The first question I'd like to look at is this. Who are these people that are trying to deceive these Christians John is writing to? second question I'd like to look at is, what is the nature of the teaching of the Spirit? What is its nature? And finally, what is the content of the true teaching of the Spirit? So those are the three things I'd like to look at, and we're going to move through them in a roughly orderly fashion following the passage. All right, so let's look at the first of these questions. If you look at verse 26, you'll notice that John says this. I am writing to you... I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so I'd simply like to ask, who are these people? Who are they? Who are these ones that are trying to deceive these Christians? You see, while it is true that John does not give a distinct name to these people, their identity is nevertheless rather easy to establish. They are what we would call proto-gnostics or pre-gnostics. Now, this term, I'd like to uh, get a show of hands. 
How many of you have ever heard that word before, Gnostic or Gnosticism? You can raise your hand even if you don't know what it means, just if you've heard it. Okay, now keep your hand raised if you think you know what that means, if you think you know what Gnosticism is. Okay, some of you know. Okay, that's good. Gnosticism is kind of like an umbrella term, and it covers a range of different non-Christian beliefs that were present during the time of the early Christian church. Um, while the particulars of all these things often varied, they do have some common themes, common themes and common elements. Firstly, Gnostic groups usually claim to have some kind of secret knowledge, a secret that no one else was privy to and that was of vital importance. So imagine this. You're a Christian and you're living in John's day. You're out at the market and you strike up a conversation with someone about the gospel. And you're telling them about Jesus, you're telling them about who he is, what he has done, and how Jesus has accomplished salvation. And now you're waiting for this person's response. Perhaps you have eager anticipation etched on your face. You know, what are they going to say? What are they going to say about Jesus Christ? And at long last, they break the silence and they say, fantastic. You know, all these things you've been saying about Jesus, right on the money. These are amazing truths. And then he goes on to say, but I can't help but notice you've left something out. You've missed something, something of vital importance, actually. And in fact, if you don't know this one little secret thing, I'm not even sure you're saved at all. And of course, you can say, what? Did I miss something? I thought I'd covered the whole story. And so you're a little confused. Now, you see, this is the kind of thing that Gnostics used to do. They used to say that they had secret knowledge. And in fact, that's where we get the word Gnosticism from. See, Gnostic is just basically an English-sounding version of the Greek word for knowledge. It means knowledge. These people claim to have knowledge usually some kind of secret knowledge. So that's the first kind of characteristic of Gnosticism. Now, the second thing that Gnostic groups used to do is they often distorted and manipulated the truth about Jesus and the truth about the gospel. For example, they would often deny that Jesus had a real human body of flesh and blood. Instead, they would say, you know, Jesus was just pure spirit. He merely appeared to be human, but he wasn't really. And the reason that they did this was because they thought all physical stuff, all matter, all flesh and blood, all of it was evil. So therefore, Jesus couldn't be physically human. See, them, for them, salvation is often about escaping our physical bodies and transcending the entire physical realm altogether. Now, the reason that I mention these two points, that Gnostics claim to have secret knowledge and that they denied that Jesus had come in the flesh, is because John attributes these exact two points to the false teachers he's talking about. Firstly, have a look a few verses earlier. In chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, John says this, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 
you can see how in this verse he's emphasizing the fact that they already know. They do know. They know. And the point of that is that these false teachers that he's encountering are denying this fact. They're saying, you don't actually know the full story. There's actually this secret little bit of knowledge that you need in order to be saved, and you don't have it yet. That's what John is confronting in this passage. So John emphasizes that these Christians already know the truth. You know. Secondly, if you ever look at verses 22 to 23, in the same chapter, John writes this. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Later in chapter 4, he's even more specific. In verses 2 to 3, he says this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So here John clearly states that you can recognize the truth because it asserts that Jesus is the Christ and that he has come in the flesh. You see, John is clearly talking about these truths that Gnostics would usually deny. So together, these texts begin to give us an idea of what these false teachers were all about. They denied that Jesus was the Messiah. They denied that he had come in the flesh, and they claimed to have some kind of secret additional knowledge that others weren't privy to. And they used this additional knowledge to justify their heresy. All of these things are hallmarks of Gnosticism. Now, we're calling them proto-Gnostics or pre-Gnostics uh, because fully developed Gnosticism is only really around 80 to 100 years after this text was written. That's when we hear about Christian authors combating Gnosticism. However, the ideas that form the Gnostic systems are clearly present already at this time and in our passage. So we call them pre-Gnostic or pre-proto-Gnostics. These false teachers belong to that kind of ilk. Now at this point, I'd like to move on to the second question that I mentioned earlier. Namely, what is the nature of the teaching of the Spirit? Now I'm hoping that my reason for asking this will become clear when we look at verse 27. I have it highlighted in blue there for you. John writes, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now at first glance, this verse might seem a little bit confusing, and there are several phrases that may trip us up if we're not careful. We'll get to those in a second. But firstly, I'd like you to notice that John begins with a contrast. He says, but, but. And by doing this, he's separating these false teachers on the one hand from the spirit on the other hand. He's saying they're very different. There's a contrast there. And the anointing that he talks about is, of course, the Holy Spirit. 
John wants these Christians to know that the Holy Spirit is their true teacher, as opposed to all of these false teachers who claim to have additional knowledge. They are not the true teachers. The Spirit of God, He is the true teacher. And this brings us to our tricky phrases. John writes, you have no need that anyone should teach you. And he also says, his anointing teaches you about everything. How are we to understand these things? How are we to understand what John is saying to these Christians? Uh, to begin this section, I'd actually like to look at some ways that we can misunderstand these things. Some of the things that John isn't saying. You know, like any good shepherd, John is at great pains to protect his flock from false teaching and false doctrine. He's aware that there's ravenous wolves out there looking to deceive them. And if we take this as our model, we should expect any good Christian teaching to do the same. It should protect people from false doctrines. And so I'm hoping that I can do that a little bit this morning. I want to protect you some, from some false ways that we can understand these passages. So... John is not saying that we should expect direct and unmediated revelation from the Holy Spirit. Now, naturally, I expect that most of you will immediately say to me, well, duh, Brad, I wasn't exactly expecting the thundering voice of God to come from heaven just for me. I wasn't even expecting a voice in my head by which God would communicate to me. And I'm glad that you're not expecting that. Um, but I'd also like to point out that this false thinking can come in far more subtle ways. Far more subtle ways. Imagine this. A very close friend of yours comes to you seeking your advice about an important decision. It could be anything, but for now, let's say they're looking to get married to a specific person. An important decision. And they say to you, I know that such and such has some rough edges. You know, they're not perfect. They like drinking, they like alcohol, they like going out and getting drunk at parties. And I know they don't particularly like coming to church and they don't really read the scriptures. But despite all of this, you know, I've been praying about it. And I really feel that God is happy for me to marry them. I really feel that way. And they might even throw to you a catchy kind of Christianese phrase. They say, I feel a sense of peace about it. What do you say? What do you think of this line of reasoning, this line of thinking? Unfortunately, I encounter this kind of thinking on a regular basis. The question is, how do we expect God to reveal or to confirm his will to us? By what means? You see, this type of thinking suggests that we should expect the Holy, the Holy Spirit to communicate to us by giving us a special feeling. That's how God communicates. He's going to give me a feeling on the inside, and that's how I'll know what God wants. Or perhaps he's going to give me a sense of peace about the decision. And if I have that sense of peace, then I know that's the will of God. We can even qualify these things by saying, you know, so long as this feeling doesn't contradict Scripture, so long as nothing in the Word of God is directly opposed to this feeling of mine, then it's good. Then it's what God really wants for me. But unfortunately, this idea is not only entirely unbiblical, it's certainly not, not what John is teaching in our passage. It's also very dangerous, very dangerous for Christians to fall into this kind of thinking. 
And unfortunately, it wouldn't surprise me if some of you have fallen victim to this thinking. And I do mean that sincerely. You know, false teaching can often creep on, up on us unawares. It can often take us off guard when we're not paying attention. You know, it can infiltrate the minds of even genuine Christians who love Jesus, genuine Christians who are saved. These false teachings create false expectations both of ourselves and of God. Say, for example, that your friend decided to get married to this person, and then you watch over the following couple of years as they go through a harrowing divorce. And then at the end of that, they say, but didn't God say it was okay for me to marry this person? Hadn't God communicated that to me by giving me this feeling? And then they ask, why has it all gone so wrong? Why is my life falling apart? You see, our false expectations can then lead to disappointment and disillusionment when our life doesn't go the way we think it should based on these false beliefs. That's why these subtle doctrines can be so dangerous. They undermine our faith and can ultimately take us away from God and away from Christ when we expect false things. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't try to offer a good alternative to this way of thinking. Um, so briefly, I'd like to say, when we're looking to make any decision, what we should ask is this. What do the scriptures say is good and right and proper? What do they say is pleasing to God? And then we look at our decision and ask, does this align with those things? Does it align? Perhaps it could even align better, and we think, okay, maybe I could change it a little bit so that it aligns more with what God has said is good in his sight. If you do that, and if you look at it and say, yes, this decision aligns with what Scripture teaches about what's good, right, and proper, then you can be confident that you are walking in the will of God. Now, of course, we get things wrong from time to time, but in general, that's the way we want to be making decisions in our lives. Notice there's absolutely no reliance on what we feel in this process. Ideally, our feelings should align up with what the Word of God says. Our feelings should give us a good indication, but they won't always. And in fact, often our feelings might lead the other way. Often we'll recognize something and say, you know, that's good, that's what God wants, but I don't want to do that. That's hard. It's not easy to do that. And so often our feelings can lead us astray, and I think we all know that. So we do need to be very careful of that. All right, let's get back to the text. If John doesn't mean that we should expect direct revelation from the Spirit, then what does he mean? To answer this, I want to remind you all that context is of very basic and vital importance. <clears throat> this is why I took so long to discuss the false teachers in the first question. Show of hands. Who knows that there's a Rugby World Cup on the go? Okay, most of you. <clears throat> and I guess it would be fair to say that some of you are fairly interested in how the All Blacks are doing, or perhaps some of the other teams. Now, perhaps we got into a discussion about the topic, and we started discussing the All Blacks' most recent game. You share your theories about why you think it went wrong, and perhaps I share mine. And then I say this to you. 
Now, I have a friend that we're really good to talk to about this topic. You know, it's someone who knows everything about the All Blacks. His name's Ian, Ian Foster. And I'm going to call him right now for you. Let's put you online. He can tell you absolutely everything. In fact, you don't need to talk to anyone else. Now, at this point, you look at me and say, oh, that's outstanding. You know, I had a cooking class book for later. I was hoping to learn to make a killer stroganoff, but I guess I'll cancel because cancel, Ian can tell me everything. How do you imagine that I'd look at you? Right? What are you thinking? What are you talking about? You see, context is of vital importance. And what I'd like to suggest is that when John says, you have no need that anyone should teach you, and his anointing teaches you about everything, these comments are constrained by the context of his discussion about false teachers. He is saying, these false teachers claim that you need further instruction to be saved. But you don't. The Holy Spirit has already taught you everything that you need for salvation. The fact that you have the Spirit is itself evidence that you have been saved. You have the Spirit, therefore you know that you are saved. John is not saying that these Christians have no need for any instruction ever again about any topic. Rather, he is saying, as far as the matter of salvation is concerned, they have no further need for teaching. See, this is why it's important to pay attention to context. And it's also why we should be wary of proof texting and single verse theology. Often the Bible can be made to say things that it doesn't mean when we ignore context. And I encourage you to look into this in your own time. Have a look at the passages preceding this. Think through what John is talking about and see how these passages fit into that context. Because I think it's quite plain what John is talking about here. Additionally, I'd also like you to have a look at verse 24. And I think I have this here. Yeah. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. See, here John is clearly referring to things that these Christians had been taught. He is referring to the gospel message, and he instructs them to hold on to that message. You see, this makes it clear that he doesn't expect the Holy Spirit to be working apart from the message they had heard. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He expects the Spirit to work in conjunction with the clear teaching of the gospel, not apart from it. So, to sum up our answer, what is the nature of the true teaching of the Spirit? I'd like to say its nature is that the Spirit teaches us in conjunction with the Scriptures and the clear teaching thereof. Or to say it a little differently, the Spirit is always working in the background of our lives in a way that we cannot feel directly, but with tremendous and powerful impacts on the surface. That is its nature. Now finally, I'd like to move on to the last question that I asked earlier. What is the content of the true teaching of the Spirit? What does it teach us? Have a look at the end of verse 27. 
John writes, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Then he goes on to expand this idea even further in verse 28 when he says, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at shame in his coming. From these words, it is very clear what that John expects the Spirit to have taught these Christians. It's clear. The Spirit has taught them to abide in Jesus Christ, to remain in Jesus Christ, to remain faithful to Him. In other words, he is saying, here is what the Spirit has taught you. Trust in Jesus Christ. And, if I can put it this way, live in that trust. Keep trusting. Abide there. Stay there. That is what the Spirit is teaching them. You see, by saying this, not only is John clearly rejecting the Gnostic idea that these Christians did not really know the real Jesus, he is also teaching us a profound truth about the ministry of the Spirit, namely, that the Spirit is in the business of pointing people to Jesus Christ. That is literally its job description, his job description. The Spirit makes much of Christ. He leads us to Jesus Christ. He magnifies Jesus Christ. Now, because of this, when we as Christians start putting all the focus on the Spirit, you know, seeking new spiritual experiences, seeking new spiritual gifts, what we are actually doing is pushing against the ministry of the Spirit because the Spirit points us to Christ. It points us to Christ, to know him better, to love him more, and therefore to serve him all the more willingly. This is what the Spirit does in our lives, and this is precisely what John is telling us. He says, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. You see, one of the things that often frustrates me about myself, but I've noticed other people do this as well, so I'm letting myself off the hook a little bit, We often try to separate living as a Christian from the person of Jesus Christ. And we can do this in numerous ways. For example, when we're facing a particularly difficult situation, we might pray something like this, Lord, please give me strength. What I need right now is strength in this situation. Or maybe, Lord, please fill me with peace about this situation. Because I need peace right now. Now, while these things aren't wrong to ask for, speaking in this manner does seem a little bit confused to me. And the reason is, it's almost like we're thinking of the benefits of salvation as being entirely separate entities. We're saying there's peace over here, there's strength over here, and God can give me these things at different times when I need them. That's not really how salvation works. It's like we're saying, at the moment, I lack strength. So what I really need is more strength. But what we don't realize is that when we get Christ, we get everything. Everything in Christ. We get all of the benefits. We don't need some abstract strength or some abstract peace. We need Christ. And when we find that we push into Christ, when we draw near to Christ, we get everything. We get fullness of peace. We get fullness of joy. We get strength. We get hope. We get love. Everything is in Christ. So when we seek Christ, when we draw near to Him, then we find that we're able to walk 
as a Christian should. We get everything. And that's a profound truth. A profound truth. To the extent that we push into Christ and to the extent that we abide in Him, we get everything. Every blessing that is available in Christ. Now I'd like to say one very quick word about the final verse here. You see, John connects this idea of abiding to Christ to identifying false teachers. In essence, he is saying this, the false teachers are recognizable because they do not abide in Christ. Remember, when we abide in Christ, we get everything. When he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is something that is in Christ. When we abide in Christ, our lives will be characterized by the righteousness of Christ. And so this can be used as a way to recognize those who aren't abiding in Christ. That's why this idea belongs here. That's very closely connected to abiding in Jesus Christ. And so now, how can I not leave you with the same notes that John does? I say to you, beloved children of God, abide in Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Place your hope in Him. Place your trust in Him. Look to His Word. Remain constant in prayer. And if you do these things, you will find that He will carry you through to the last day. And you will have every blessing in Him along the way. Every blessing. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank You that we have every blessing in him and that you have united us to him in faith so that everything he has, he is able to give to us as well. Thank you that we can find perfect strength in him, hope, joy, peace, comfort, and great encouragement. And thank you that you've provided for us all the means that we need to continually draw near to him. You've given us your word, the scriptures, and you've given us your spirit which teaches us to abide in Jesus Christ. So now, Lord, I pray that you would give us all zeal, encourage us all, that we might all continually seek Jesus Christ, and that in doing so, we might lift his name high and give him glory and give him honor and give him praise, and that all the world might see this and that they might be drawn to you through this, that they might be saved as well. This we all pray in your holy name. Amen.